Welcome to the PetroNerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of PetroNerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Hello, and welcome back to the PetroNerds Podcast. This is episode 17. Today is Friday, May 21st, 2021. It is the day after Ethan Bellamy's birthday. Happy birthday, Ethan. Thank you very much, Trisha. You know, it's funny. Um, you're the only woman who texts me at 1.30 in the morning <laughs> about the IEA. Usually it's about something else. So thank you very much for making me laugh last night. Text, I also texted <laughs> happy birthday at like 12.15 on his birthday to make sure he knew. Anyway, thank you. So we have, it has been an action-packed week. It has. And There's I'm, a lot to talk about. I'm excited to talk about all the stuff that's going on around the world and here at home. We are coming to you live for recorded from Axel's Den here in Denver, Colorado. Um, we'll hope he doesn't bark at the landscapers next door. Yes. Um, but you, you make do with what you have. So right now, this is our podcast studio. So today we're going to cover at least at a minimum oil prices around the IEA hilarious report that came out. And uh, we can walk around the world. It's it's hurricane season already. Um, gas is at three bucks because of some you know outlook from Noah on cool weather. Oil prices um, last night though. I mean, so today yeah. we're at sixty three WTI. Last night I saw sixty one and change, and that was around one in the morning. But sixty one and change. So I mean, I <clears throat> this oil price market piece. I think I'd love to kind of dive into in this thing with Iran because I do think. Um, I do think Iran is weighing on the market. I, we do have a ceasefire that does seem to be holding in, in, in with Israeli and Palestinians in Gaza, although I heard that there's some uh, police issues going on within Jerusalem, so it doesn't look good. That's that hasn't really weighed. This is uh, that really hasn't weighed on, on the oil market too much. So we're hearing positive stuff out of um, from Rouhani um, from the Iranian leadership saying, hey, things are looking really good. And that, we heard this a few weeks ago as well. And I think it was Blinken had to get on get get on TV and basically say, no, we're not doing we, we haven't agreed to anything yet. So he's sort of pushing this. And wait, wait, who is that? This is Blinken, secretary yeah. of our secretary of state. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Just want to secretary make sure. secretary yeah. of Blinken. Secretary I, know, of state. I know there are Blinken. a lot of Republicans who listen to this podcast who have intentionally not made themselves familiar with every oh, Biden yeah. administration. So Blinken official. is our so, secretary yes. of state. Right. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so he he got on TV. This was a few weeks ago and said, hey, we, we haven't agreed to anything. Well, and he's been saying that in, in stuff. So. Iran, though, the leadership. So last night I'm, I'm, you're seeing oil prices slide last this past week and you're seeing um, it, and it does seem to be the Iran seems to be one demand outlooks are a little bit concerned for given everything happening in India still with COVID. But I think it has more to do with Iran. Huge acceleration in something like 250,000 per day new cases in India. Yes. And the, the and honestly, India seems to be that. I think the concerns around COVID are, are still relatively muted because the effectiveness of the vaccine in the U.S. has been so good. So it's kind of the thought. I think the market in general has has looked at everything and said essentially Pfizer and Moderna have proven effective in uh, spreading. So basically they can stop spreading. So if these countries get it, I think the thought is that 
it will stop. And India has sort of refused to do lockdowns like they did before because they um, don't have the same type of country as we do. And their people live very, very tightly together. Um, and they had people that couldn't get home and couldn't get from region to region. And it was major, major dislocations and problems. And so they've sort of refused to do the same lockdown they had. So they're kind of living with the situation. And I think it was 350,000 cases. Per, so the cases per day, I believe, are coming down to a degree and there's pockets. It's very messy. It's really bad. But and they did just say India just said they're they're uh, refusing LNG shipments. So they're trying to rework LNG right. cargoes that they. So clearly there's some impact on energy demand. 100 percent. So LNG oil is right. going to be impacted in the short term, but it's <clears throat> it's a short term thing. So that's our that's our first digression on oil. But yeah, the sorry, second yes. one is that. China appears to be stepping up its crude imports now and is undergoing a full recovery, which is more the demand indicator yeah. that that people are looking at. Yes, and they're at over they're over eleven million barrels. They're eleven million barrels a day and change. It's always between eleven and twelve of crude oil um, of of crude oil imports. The tricky thing there is that they're also exporting. I saw that their exports for product were up, so which is good in that you're. You know, you see that the market's healthy, so it means that other countries are demanding it. So I think in 2015, 2016, one of the things that happened was uh, we were able to sort of support or at least China was able to sort of kind of support the market. We didn't have the massive, massive crash um, because they could they were exporting to to um, Pakistan and stuff for product. They weren't obviously able to do that during COVID. And now we're seeing about 1.7 million barrels a day product exports, which means the export market's healthy, but it also means they're exporting it. So the refineries are running well, which is great for refinery profitability in China, but it also means that they're not consuming it. Um, so you just have to keep that in context. And that happens, you know, if you historically look at most countries, if you have a lopsided, if they're demanding more gasoline than diesel, et cetera, then they're going to be exporting. So that makes sense. But it's important to know if you're if you're exporting a decent amount, you're not consuming it. And that's just something to, to flag. OK, so back from China on the demand side to Iran on the supply side, they have a bilateral agreement. Um, they will the Iranians will export to China and the context around why the JCPOA and the Iran deal matters is that uh, right now Iran's at about 2.4 million barrels per day yep. and pre-sanction they were at about 3.9 million barrels per day. So the market is basically digesting another million and a half barrels a day plus of potential supply coming onto the market. The Russian oil minister said the market can easily digest that, um, but clearly there's sort of this herky-jerky restart demand growth and you know new supply growth coming online, potentially with, from OPEC cheating and or increased quotas. And therefore, that's why we're probably getting this oil volatility in the 60 to 70 billion dollar range. Absolutely. And I think so. There's a you summarize that. Well, I think there's a couple things. There's a couple things with Iran um, and they're really getting. And I, I want to loop back, make sure make sure we loop back and hit this inflation piece, because I do think it's it's important because I think it, it's actually positive and bullish for for oil investment and sentiment. Um, but so Iran, I mean, if you look at the OPEC figures from the OPEC report that came out um, in last week, those show that Iran, Iran's been north of 2 million barrels a day, and they've in, they basically everybody said they inched their way up. We've talked about it in previous podcasts that, you know, China's taking those barrels. They sort of send them to a different country. They label them as something else. And we, so we know China's getting between a half a million to a million barrels a day from Iran. Now, that's a decent amount, and so it's increased. So we see um, Middle East Economic Survey, Mies, puts up their uh, their numbers at just, just like, Almost 700,000 barrels per day for for um, Iranian exports, um, crude and basically from th that's hopeful of returning. So they have 
two and a half million barrels a day that they were exporting that obviously came down considerably. And now they're pushing north of a million barrels a day. But actual production we're showing from OPEC is north of two million barrels per day. And the thought is that they will go back to they can easily add a million to two million barrels a day of production relatively quickly. And I think what's interesting to that is that there was an article from, and it's probably, I'm sure there was everywhere, but Iran, um, it's a Bloomberg article that said, Iran to start oil exports port skirting troubled straits. So Iran has actually has a pipeline ready to go. So the timing on all this is interesting. The fact that Iran's leadership is pushing, you know, the go ahead and these sanctions, you know, it's hard because, I mean, they definitely played their cards well. They basically said, hey, we're going to increase our Iranian, or our uranium, sorry, our uranium enrichment, and we're going to get really close to um, having a, a nuclear weapon, and therefore then we will bring everyone in to, to lift sanctions. At the same time, we're going to export all this crew to China. So to me, they're... They're definitely playing everyone that they can. And it does seem that um, from what we've heard out of Lincoln in the White House, it does. And from the market and, and the reviews is that it does seem like we're probably going to agree to have an agreement in place because we want to try to control the situation in the near term. The problem is we're probably not going to have a lot, whole lot of control. So it'll help things in the near term to decrease their um, uranium enrichment, but it's not necessarily going to give us a lot of control. Um, so it means that we are going to be, you know, adding barrels back to the market, and that is going to create some problems within Saudi Arabia. And there is, and in, in, within OPEC, and there is a link, a general link with the Israeli issue, because now that we do have the Abraham Accords, which is, you know, agreements between um, even, you know, PACs or whatever agreements or, or peace agreements with um, Israel and all these Arab countries, uh, I believe Hamas was firing, you know, Hamas and Iran are, are linked. Um, and there are some concerns between the, the Arabs or the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and Iran's role in as well. So this is all interwoven and I don't think goes away anytime soon. Um, yeah, absolutely. So what, what's interesting is that almost all the global strife now involves energy. You've got Hamas uh, and the IDF. And remember, Israel is now uh, an energy producer with Tamar, and that relates to Chevron. Um, they're basically back in action now, but is Israel is now a, a gas producer, which is interesting. You've got strife in Colombia, where that has actually curtailed some production. Um, uh, there were a couple companies. Let me see. Israel's yeah, a major. Israel's yeah. a large gas producer yeah, now with yeah. Leviathan and formerly Noble, now Chevron. Yeah, so G, uh, Gulf Terra, um, GTE, and GPRK both had uh, production curtailed in Colombia. And then we had a uh, Houthi drone that was shot down by the Saudis. So, only, and, and by the way, my friend, thank you to the United States Navy, um, interdicted a big shipment of uh, guns supplied most likely by the Iranians to the Houthis. So, you may have seen some photos about that. So, thanks, United States Navy. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's pretty interesting that all this strife is tied in directly to, to key energy markets. Yeah, and I think that tells you, one, I mean, so traders could just not be honing in on it, but it, it does tell you the state of the market. And I think that a couple things that there's these concerns about inflation. There's obviously the concerns about um, the concerns about ESG, the green movement, anti-oil, everything. So that's that weighs down on, on oil. But you would think five, 10 years ago, we would definitely would have had a risk premium. You couldn't have had 
even if, you know, you have the Arab, you know, Palestinian conflict, even if that doesn't directly impact energy, it's in the Middle East. People are concerned to spill over. Like we said, there is a uh, there is a linkage with Iran. That means there's a linkage with Saudi Arabia. That means there's a linkage with OPEC. It all right. it's the Middle East. So it all it, it's a very, <laughs> yeah. and you know. Not to mention that as of I think the last that I saw was there were still 8000 southeastern U.S. gasoline stations without fuel because of the attack on Colonial Pipeline by most likely Russian hackers. Yeah. So we're, should we back up and say that we were, I want to say we were wrong on the last podcast, but that it has, it has had a slightly more long-term effect. One, because people did exacerbate it by hoarding um, and getting grocery sacks and prisoners dilemma. Yes. yes. Um, so there's some hoarding, I still think, but it is up and they're delivering supplies. They're delivering yes, gasoline they supplies. They had some network outages this week, but they are up and running delivered supplies after they paid a ransom. Yeah, after they pay their ransom. And, you know, the images of people using laundry baskets with holes in them and um, grocery sacks to get gasoline. <clears throat> Reminds me of the dapple protesters who were out of gas on the highway with a sign up that said looking for gas. Just, uh, There's certain ironies here. <laughs> just you. Uh, if it's got holes in it, it's not going to be able to hold the gasoline, folks. Um, but, you know, that's well, that's maybe for another time of educating. So this this Iranian thing, too, also is they have a pipeline that they've been working on. So when scoring the circle, going back to this Iran thing and the timing of, of how they're talking about this with, with leadership and everything is that they and increasing these exports to China. So they basically have a pipeline that's going to come online and it basically goes around the Strait of Hormuz and basically perfect to the, like a Gulf of Oman. And it's called the it's the JASP. I believe it's called the, I'm pronouncing this wrong, um, pipeline. So they'll be able to basically, this, this pipeline's going to be able to deliver crude um, around the Strait of Hormuz and then you can pick it up so you don't have to go through that strait. That's pretty big. It doesn't even matter. It, this could be 100,000 barrels a day. They start with, it could be a million bar barrels a day. doesn't matter. Every bit of crude that goes through that, that they can deliver to, that can go through the pipeline, they can deliver to that facility. That means that crude does not have to go to the Strait of Hormuz, which if you look up oil choke points, that is a major choke point. It's a tiny little strait. So it helps them alleviate a major choke point in their exports. It also means that Iran has been thinking about this for a long time. So we've had sanctions. The U.S. has had sanctions on Iran for quite a while. Um, obviously during the Trump administration and in, you know, the Obama administration. And then we did the, uh, we obviously, we did the JCPOA and we were in all these agreements and, and lifted these sanctions um, and allowed them to do stuff. But Iran's been under sanctions for a long time. The fact that they've done this and they're gearing up for this, they definitely saw Biden as a signal of, of a much more dovish, less hawkish um, leadership that was going to sort of allow them to do stuff. And, and they've been doing it. India has also said that they're happy to, uh, purchase stuff from Iran. That is really to piss off the Saudis more than anything, I think, um, as opposed to real diversification. But I think India and China are, are China's already buying it, but they're ready and waiting to buy crude from Iran. Yes. And um, it, it's it's interesting that the Biden administration has a fairly dovish foreign policy. So you've got the JCPOA coming back, not a ton of options because of the bilateral agreement from Iran and, and China but also um, not enforcing the sanctions on the contractors for Nord Stream 2, which is the gas pipe that yes. is increasing supply from Russia to Germany. So, so basically they gave the go. They, they essentially gave, didn't give the green lights, but they basically didn't continue pressure. So essentially we do have an administration that's okay with Nord Stream 2. And, and to be honest, Nord Stream was basically already built. You know, you do have very close. I mean, this is a natural gas, the major natural gas source for Germany and other parts of Europe and goes through Ukraine. But this is problematic because you, you have a leadership that's, uh, a, I, 
think I think Biden's going to get criticism, not just from from conservatives and the Republican Party on on Iran. But I think he you know, if he's if he ends up being a little bit softer on China than people expect and he's soft on Iran, it it's it's foreign policy. You can't be seen as too soft on in foreign policy. I, and I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat. It just doesn't look good and it doesn't play right, especially when there's ramifications for it, especially if oil prices slide, which they're they probably will if you had two million barrels a day. So. I think he's playing a, an interesting game of being, um, you know, Obama was very apologetic as when he came into office. Um, and I don't think Biden's being completely apologetic, but it's on energy. He's being extremely hypocritical. So he's basically put a leasing ban on, you know, on current federal lands for leasing. Vicki Holub in her in the Q1 earnings call, the CEO of the CEO of Occidental Q1 earnings call, Occidental Petroleum. Vicki Holub makes a very clear statement about um she basically says we have permits on existing. Basically, she believes that we're going to continue to get permits on existing federal leases. And she calls out the administration though, and, and really calls out how bad it would be for the U.S. if we had a federal leasing, if we continued the moratorium on federal leases, which basically I guess there's a people are now saying August that this is going to go through. I think that this is uh, I mean, she she kind of alludes to the fact that she thinks it could be real, that they could continue this. So the fact that even if they lifted it right now, you have a leasing ban on, on federal leases in the U.S., but you have. So the president has done that with the executive order on climate change, but is OK, basically the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and has OK and canceled Keystone Excel and is and is going to lift sanctions on Iran, which is an immediate impact to to increase oil production. So that's hypocrisy for global oil and gas production for and climate change that if you and, and we can we 100 percent can do it cleaner here than they can do it in Iran. No so. question about that. I need to, I misspoke earlier and said Gulf Terra. I meant to say Grand Tierra GTE. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that is a good point, which is no pipelines here. No development here, but allow Lauron to go forward. And it 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 seems like a challenging and very inconsistent policy to uh, to justify and certainly leaves the administration open for um, significant criticism. Absolutely. And I mean, all you have to do is see the I mean, you guys can pull up the, the actual OPEC numbers and see where um, in OPEC's monthly report and see where Saudi Arabia is at. I mean, they were just at I mean, their production's still down. So they did add a little bit back in April, but it's a smidgen. Um, and we saw, you know, Iran, I said, is at two, two over two million barrels per day. Every country seemed to add a little bit. I think their net number overall was an additional 75,000 barrels a day. Actually, Venezuela was down. I think that helped them a little bit. Um, so we haven't seen Iran's important in this in terms of the oil market and oil prices because we haven't actually seen what the barrels that are being brought back. So we need to see um, how much was actually brought back in May. Um, and I doubt it was a ton because the and it, I'm sure they've brought back a little bit more. And I'm sure, oh, Russia's at 10.76 million barrels per day. So they're edging up to 11 million barrels per day. So the market has absorbed that decently. But I think um, at least from those April numbers, Saudi Arabia is holding back pretty well in terms of production. So they're not unleashing it. Um, and that means that they said that they would add, you know, they said between April and July that we're going to we were going to add two million barrels per day back to the market. So if we also the reason why you're seeing some trepidation in, in prices is because if, if these sanctions on Iran are lifted and Iran will try to increase production as quickly as possible to cap, to capture this upside in oil prices, it's going to pressure it. So likely, I think, um, and it was 
Um, Lombard Odier, I think that uh, they were on Bloomberg. I don't know. I'm not super familiar with them, but they're a group there. They're um, one of their guys on, was on Bloomberg and he was calling for $60 oil, basically for the same reasons that we've been saying the whole time is that OPEC has all these barrels. They're going to have to be, bring them back to the market steadily. And then this whole Iran thing. So this whole $60 oil is still is getting a little bit more traction that the likelihood of um, these Iran sanctions being lifted. And then last piece on inflation. Oh, that was actually a real yeah. pause where I could well, have jumped a, in and I it, didn't even jump I know, on it. You should have. You should have <laughs> I want your thoughts on this and I want to tease this out a little bit because we talked about, I mean, obviously, inflate, the concerns about inflation are huge. And the Fed's minutes came out. The Fed's minutes came out and you probably saw this, that they, they sort of alluded to the fact that they would be open to maybe talking about in the future at a future meeting. They would maybe theoretically talk about tapering, you know, um, so that's a good thing, right? They're they're thinking about tapering. And so that moved the market. The market came down a little bit. But how this relates back to oil, I think it is important because we I was listening to the China Geopolitics podcast. Another shout out. That is a really good, really good podcast. Who, um, who, who does it? It's the South China, or the South China Post. They're based in Hong Kong and they do a really, really good podcast on everything China. But they have this great <laughs> economist and he always gets back and disinflation stuff. So the inflation read in the US, which we talked about in our in, in a couple weeks ago in the podcast was um, we had this massive 4.2%. The interesting piece about that is it wasn't so much well, we had a 4.2% year over year inflation read and that, you know, was strong. But the Fed, the trickiness with the Fed is that it was a eight tenths of a percent higher month over month. So basically, the Fed is saying it's transitory, it's short term, but we had a monthly increase of nearly a percent. And if you go to the grocery store and you see how damn small those cereal boxes are, I have honestly not been grocery shopping in forever. So I went to the store with my mom to help him grocery shop. The sizes of everything have gotten smaller. Is that because you don't eat? That's shut up. No, it's because I. <laughs> you are you are wearing a dress that you bought in college. This is true. Um, <laughs> this is true. That's a that's a good thing. You know, uh, never have to. I buy new clothes, but then I just end up with too many of them. Um, so yeah. So I mean, I think these these this inflation piece is interesting because um, Dan Pickering mentioned on and so this guy Lombard Odier from Lombard Odier and a couple others and actually J.P. Morgan asset manager was on Bloomberg last night and he was saying, hey, we are advising clients you know, who weren't necessarily comfortable getting back into energy to get back into energy and industrials to sort of pivot a little bit as um, to diversify with inflation. And, you know, Dan Pickering had actually mentioned in um, in Clubhouse with, with Chuck Yates um, on Wednesday night that he, you know, Chuck had was kind of painting a doomsday scenario for, for oil and gas and everything and how young people don't like it. And Dan was saying, you know, we're seeing actually just very recently kind of a move back into it. And I, I think it's real and that, you know, Oil prices are north of 60. It's relatively steady. And obviously, um, you know, ARK Investments, we've done, uh, what's her name? Oh, am I blanking? Kathy Wood. Kathy Wood. And loves that tech. Her portfolio has been decimated because it has no diversification. And I think people are really realizing that you just can't be in one basket. And so oil and the fact that, you know, we're seeing a demand recovery in just the overall economic growth. But that that inflation rate is really important on that because it means that when we had that big of an inflation jump, it means that 
everyone has to revise their forecast. So not just in the US, but globally, everyone's revising their forecast for growth. But eventually, when you have that high of inflation, it impacts economic growth. And that's what impacts oil, that will ultimately impact oil demand and oil prices. So inflation is not like a little bit is a good thing. Too much of it is a bad thing and too much of it too fast. And we have this very pandemic induced inflation where, you know, corporations are actually hoarding stuff. So this is like a bit like toilet paper. But, you know, we still have the the chip shortage, which most of these uh, semiconductor chips are made in Taiwan, which is a whole nother hot button issue. Um, but that we have this chip shortage that Ford said they're still they're going to be down uh, at least through the second half. Um, so the, they're going to they reduce. I think they reduced the output again for the second half and they won't be back up to normal till toward the end of the year and next year. So, I mean, all these things are sort of exacerbating this. And um, and then you it, it's it's messy. Um, and my concern and warning to people is that it could impact, you know, too much of it. And then the Fed having to if the Fed tapers like this fall um, or, or this winter or something that would start easing. But if they increase interest rates or they have to tap on the brakes too hard with interest rates, that cools off the economy. And then not necessarily you have a recession, but it cools things off and that impacts demand. Yeah. So a couple things on inflation. Firstly, you know, we've had this incredible combination of both fiscal and monetary stimulus. And the only thing that, well, there's a couple of things that worry me. The first is that the fiscal stimulus will be ending because the COVID related payouts are going to be over. So that is pressure on the, you know, the, I'd say the bottom economic tier in the U.S. and in other places where you've seen that sort of um, protection. So that's a problem at the same time that the inflation in consumer prices is likely to, to drop up the cost of goods and services. So that pinch really worries me for people at the bottom of the, the socioeconomic platform, which we don't need any more pressure because the class warfare that we've seen yes. in the, you know, it's just just a, a layup for, you know, more Antifa type street protests and whatever. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, the, the second thing is that, um, you know, we we don't really know whether it's, you know, there's a case to be made that it's transitory. There's a case to be made that it's structural. Regardless, if you look at the great financial crisis, if you look at the history of the Fed funds rate with respect to the cycles in the market and the economic cycles, you and, we're, you know, let's say let's just start at Greenspan. The Fed, in my view, is a pro-cyclical crash generator. So they are absurdly good at giving the market too much stimulus for too long and creating and sowing the seeds of the next catastrophe. So they apparently have learned nothing. And if, if they don't create some ammo because the Fed funds rate has been just declining, 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 they don't have any any ammo in there and they're having arrows in their quiver left. They, they, so they say though, and they say they have arrows in their quiver. So I will ask you, so there's a couple copies. So those are really, really good points. And I'm glad. I, well, I think, let me finish though. Okay. They didn't fit, and yeah, they're, please, and please. they're monetizing an enormous deficit. Mm -hmm. So the amount of fiscal irresponsibility from all parties, Congress, the White House, which wants to spend another $4 trillion or some other number on infrastructure and the Fed is ridiculous. So that ends very badly. And, you know, we've also got, you know, I think you mentioned Stanley Druckenmiller on our last podcast mm -hmm. that 
there's a real chance that in 10 to 15 years, the U.S. loses its reserve currency status, which is very bad and kind of like end of empire British pound type stuff. So I know that's not going to help people make money or invest money in this next quarter. But I, the world that I want my kids and their and their uh, prospective children to live in does not include the U.S. losing its reserve currency status. I, so I, I I don't disagree with I, I agree oh, with that. Oh boy! I, well, we're not going to so I we are not going to lose the the world's reserve currency status because even in the financial we'll crisis, we visit this on 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 Petra we were, podcast episode number three hundred and fifty. Um, we, we were we were. A, the cleanest, dirtiest shirt in the closet. We caused the Great Recession. We caused the financial crisis. And yet, you know, people thought we would tank. And I was at the London School of Economics at this time with people, you know, poo-pooing the U.S. and saying the rise of China, the fall of the U.S. And it didn't happen. And it didn't happen because we have uh, the U.S. Treasury market is one of the most uh, deep. It's the most liquid and transparent markets yeah, in the, the world. Yeah, but the only people buying treasuries are the Fed. Well, yes. So hold on here. The foreigners so have stopped buying it. The, the trickiness. And I, I don't I think the Fed is playing this wrong. Right. So I think they want to They're They've gotten partly into this class four four piece because they're trying to get full maximum employment, full unemployment. They're letting the economy run out. So we are well four point two percent. Right. The Fed has said they want to go. They, they were OK running hot north of two percent for a while. We're four point two percent, folks. How long are you going to let it run that hot? They explain that it's transitory. And they sort of when you get into the nuances of the pandemic and what COVID did and how how it's COVID and it's the fiscal response and it's the it's the checks and the stimulus and the fact that we have 8.1 million jobs open and over nine million people unemployed. Um, and every I, I've taken pictures. I'm going to tweet them. So I stop in at the come and go. They're offering it's fifteen fifty an hour. I stopped to come and go in Silverthorne um, to go to the bathroom. Um, I went to the Starbucks yesterday and they are offering they have job openings there. Everywhere you go that's a service oriented has jobs. Fifteen dollars an hour. Lots of people don't want those jobs, partly for good reason, because some of them are still, you know, they still have kids at home from school and all the schools haven't reopened. That's probably going to change in the fall. But it's also because you have twenty two dollars an hour unemployment benefits. And so that's creating, you know, this gap in the workers. And that gap shortage is creating inflationary pressures because people don't have the goods that they need. They don't have the service they need. Corporations are hoarding. And so it's a very, very unique type of inflation that's been induced by the coronavirus pandemic and the forced economic shutdown and the fiscal response, which is too much. It, you got to get rid of those things. They have to, at the very least, be gone by September because we're going to have massive issues with that. And then we actually have the stimulus checks that have created inflation. I mean, people, you know, have gone out and bought lots of things with these checks. Um, we now have, instead of the child tax credit and you have children, so you'll probably be getting, uh, you'll probably be getting these checks in July. Zero. People will be getting $300 a month per kid. Um, or roughly it's 250 to $300 a month per kid every month through December. I, I, I'm all for helping people out with their children. You know, my sister's one of those, she has two kids and she's a single mom and that's great. But I guarantee you 300, an extra $300 a month in people's pockets per kid will, it's not going to, it's certainly not going to depress the inflationary pressure environment, you know? Um, so that's a, that's a real issue. And then the, it's it, it just all these things together, I think are, are, are messy. This, your comment about though, that the asset bubbles, that's the real one that I think uh, the, you know, Kaplan and folks within the Fed, and I'm going to go through those Fed minutes as well to make sure we see that. But that's what I think people are getting concerned about and why they're saying that they're hinting about the 
you know, potentially thinking about tapering, they need to start tapering immediately and they need to raise have a slow interest rate rise in January. That means the rest, some of us who have any kind of cash savings can start putting those in CDs and they're stable and then we don't create these asset bubbles. Right now, everyone is freaking out about inflation and they're searching for, they're searching for yield. And so guess what? People are actually entertaining, getting back into shale, getting back into oil, getting back into all these things that they didn't think they would get back into because they want to they want to hedge against inflation. And you the market has to eventually balance out. And so it's going to create unique circumstances, which we're already seeing. Um, and there will be repercussions for it 100 percent. But the Fed and the fiscal side have got to get aligned. And I don't think. You know, it doesn't seem as rosy in D.C. I'm going to D.C. next week, so hopefully I'll get some insight on this. It doesn't quite seem as rosy on the Hill in D.C. Biden's uh, these big, big infrastructure plans with these big tax bills don't seem like they're going down quite well. Um, we haven't seen a whole lot of like, yes, this is going through tomorrow. Well, it doesn't make a ton of sense to spend a bunch of money on fiscal stimulus when you've got inflation. And uh, we. You know, and well, <laughs> one, you're going to create more inflation and two, everything's really expensive. So I think it was the, in this China geopolitics podcast, they're talking about steel in China. Well, some companies, so they get the iron ore from Australia, which is another complication because they are on the outs, the China and Australia are on the outs. They're not purchasing any wine from Australia. They have impact also, they you know, put bans on, on imports of lots of Australian goods. They're thinking about doing iron ore and iron ore, they get, 60% of it from Australia. That's how they make their steel. Some companies in China are literally saying we're not going to make the steel because we can't afford to make it. So steel prices are going up. I mean, and China is now warning about signs of trying to warn signs of inflation. So they're trying to work on this as well. It's a problem when the U.S. and China, the two biggest economies in the world, are experiencing inflation and that, you know, the U.K. is opening up and, and Europe is opening up and people are going to Portugal for everything. We're all going to experience it. Um, so it's it just doesn't make it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The fact that China sort of uh, and I wouldn't say they're tapering or anything, but they're, they're warning about it. Yes, it, it's it now creates problems for, for Biden. And when he says that, you know, I have to say this because it drives me a little crazy. But when he gets up and he says, you know, well, I've added more jobs than any U.S. president. Yes, you started at a very, very low base. And it doesn't mean that you didn't do a good job of getting those jobs back online. But like you any president was probably going to add some of those jobs back because we were such a low base. And, you know, every Bush helped Obama get the, you know, the TARP package in. So it helped about teed everything up for Obama for the recovery. You know, Trump worked on getting the, you know, really pushing the vaccines to get it done. We wouldn't have a recovery. And I'm not I'm not promoting Trump to already. I'm just saying that, like, the vaccine recovery was is the recovery in the U.S. And it is part of the inflation picture. But you wouldn't have you had to have that vaccine push and you couldn't have all those job growth. And the fact that we didn't ha we had increased unemployment and that stickiness in the unemployment number has a lot more to do with the fiscal side and the fiscal response. Not saying that wouldn't have also happened under under Trump. It's just a little bit more nuanced than who's in office. So with that, I think we have. Yeah, let me let totally. me throw in some interesting stats. So let's Please. bring it back to our energy audience here. ENPs are sexy again. Yes. Tech is tech is burning down. <laughs> ENPs are up on the year. Uh, not not to mention oil field services and midstream as well. My baby. Um, you know, we had a Oasis just sold a package for. $480 million. And what was interesting about that deal, which I really liked, was um, $75 million of the transaction was in contingent payments based on oil prices being at least $60 uh, in 23, 24, and 25. So people are sharing the 
this uncertainty. And I think that's a good structure to actually get mm-hmm. deals done is sharing the uncertainty about, you know, valuation based on how the oil market is going to play out. Um, a stat that I saw from the EMP team at Morgan Stanley, kudos to them, which is interesting, is that EMPs collectively generated $6 billion in the first quarter of 2020. Or excuse me, uh, 2021. Yeah, that's where we are. Um, the highest quarterly level level in over 10 years, uh, going back to the, to the pre-shale era, if oh, you wow. will. So, and 80% of the names were free cash flow positive. Yep. So we've got real free cash flow coming out of the energy sector. We've discarded this build NAV and destroy cash, or at least, you know, spend more than you than you make. But oil pri- high prices, it's unexpectedly high prices in the first quarter of the year. And I mean, it's, you heard that on every single yeah, yeah, but a lot of people were hedged. So, yeah, they were. That's, that's so very that, true. So that, that hurt, right? So on an unhedged basis, things look really good. So yeah, so an unhedged basis, things are good. And you also had that you had such massive cuts in spending from 2020 combined with that all the massive investor pressure, ESG pressure, climate change, everything. And then you roll that all over to 2021 where they say, well, hey, we're basically keeping things flat. And that's where you're at. So it, it, it is positive. I, I, are you hearing as much as I'm hearing that I do hear globally way more concerns about the U.S. shale picking up is that there's so many concerns out of OPEC and actually from if you if you read other journals and stuff at, from foreign journals that shale is going to start getting back into gear and they're watching the recount. And they're watching oil prices. You know, people always fight the last battle or the last war and what they have gotten accustomed to is shale being deservedly so short cycle, right? So we can, we can make things happen pretty quickly and pretty efficiently. Um, and that's the last thing that really caused the great cave in of the oil market up to 2014 when we had the Halloween massacre with OPEC where they said no mas. So they're looking the at that, massacre. you know, <laughs> that's, that's what it was. It certainly hurt me. So, you know, yeah, they should pay attention to that, but that's, to me, that's a red herring because it is the most transparent information market in the world. And the real question is what's going on elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Because I think non-OPEC, non-US production is really the place where there's not as much information there to really, and really that, pay attention to. And that's honestly where, I mean, this comes back to our kind of not bullish, but not as bullish of oil prices as everyone else is just that I think this this creates this creates stability in the U.S. So all these changes and everything, and that's really the takeaway in our in our last podcast, which actually drops today, where we talk about earnings and everything, and, and listening to Occidental Petroleum's call. This stability of you know this health that you're explaining for the operators from high, decent oil prices, they are unhedged, so that makes me a little bit, or some of them are, are less hedged, makes me a little bit concerned going forward. But decent oil prices and the fact that they're they're free cash flow positive. And that you have had all these efficiency gains, massive efficiency gains. And I know that we're going to get some flack and people are going to talk about, you know, rip on us a little bit for these efficiency gains, but they're really real. And I think this also, you know, Occidental talked significantly about the CO2 side and I have will be, you know, on the bandwagon with everyone else for ripping the the purchase of Anadarko and the price that was paid for Anadarko and and the debt that was taken from Warren Buffett and the price of that debt and 4% interest and all that, right? I'm on the same thing. But in terms of what uh, is being done with the company now in the positioning, I do think the CO2, you know, the fact that Vicky Hall talked about the recovery of, of 
going into conventionals with CO2, obviously it works. We, we know that. Um, the fact that EOG talked about, you know, going really targeting conventionals in the unconventional manner, that's really where the world's going, right? It's, it's that in both, by the way, both Occidental and EOG are in Oman. EOG is only doing two wells this year. But these are companies that are going to take the knowledge from the U.S. shale and they're going to take it abroad and it's going to unleash a lot. And the fact that, you know, Vicki Halb is talking about, you know, using CO2 reinjection in unconventional reservoirs to increase recovery. In fact, you know, we have very, very low recovery rates in, in unconventional shale. And that's a that's a good thing in the sense that there's still a lot of oil down there. But this is not over like the the U.S. oil and gas space is not over. Um, and we may not hit 11 or 13 million barrels per day again anytime soon or, or maybe ever. But I think we can easily maintain 11 million barrels a day. And that is a risk. Uh, that's a bigger risk to OPEC than I think they realize when they want to bring their barrels back to market. Yeah. And that is still a question mark around federal lands. Um, a huge question mark for federal and, lands. And we don't we don't have uh, enough time to get into this, but I would I would recommend everyone watch Alex Epstein's uh, congressional testimony, which was interesting because there are certainly the, the haters out there, as you can imagine. And as a reminder, he's the author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. He's a philosopher. And uh, the best they could do was that hominem attacks for him wearing a T-shirt. Nobody's willing to directly engage with the with what he calls the clear thinking around energy poverty globally and the role of fossil fuels in meeting that demand. And I continue to think that the Chinese are taking us for a ride. They're out there building gigawatts and gigawatts of coal-fired power plants. Meanwhile, we're blocking pipelines, et cetera, and making energy costs <laughs> higher in the U.S., which is just going to export industrial and energy intensive manufacturing to places that aren't having those same energy policies. So we are uh, going to we're going to get yeah, into this, we, we in this will get into IA report. So I, I definitely recommend um, at least reading his transcript, um, but watching the testimony is pretty great. So I do want to bring us back to the, the behemoth of the week before we run out of time, which is the IEA report. Yes, but before we do that, real of quick. Of course. I have to, because yes. I have to, I, he, he was finally talking and I thought I could pull up my charts here, so I have to do this. <laughs> so um, Middle East Economic Survey has this awesome chart, um, and this is, uh, they just stacked up basically, so this is, this is gets back to my sort of, not Permian bullish, well, I am bullish on the Permian, but just the perspective of if you look at like 2017 versus now, um, and to Ethan's point on, on free cash flow positive and everything. So, Middle East Economic Survey puts this chart together and they show you the production of or the production targets, at least for these major oil producers in the Permian. And they show 2021 and it's you have Chevron and Pioneer at the top at 625,000 barrels per day, 618,000 barrels per day. And these are these are barrel oil equivalent per days. And then you have Oxy at 485, Exxon. So all these are stacked up. It's almost double what it was in 2017. And I think that's just important to point out because obviously we had a huge rig ramp in 2018, then it declined in 2019, you know, and oil prices declined in 2018. The fact that we've continued these trajectories and these targets is really important because it shows the importance and relevance of the Permian Basin and all of the majors in the Permian Basin, but it also just shows that we haven't stopped growing. You know, these companies haven't necessarily stopped growing. And even if it's small and they're single digit percentages, it's still gross. And it's important to to think about in the whole thing of, you know, it's not like these guys are down and out. Certainly not growing as much as the midstream companies would want to fill up yes. that excess pipeline capacity, uh, which is uh, uh, ample 
in most places except for maybe the Northeast. Yes. Um, and that, this is the, your perfect, <laughs> this is your perfect segue because according to the IEA report, um, and this is just amazing because yeah. everybody had super right. fun with this. So, yeah, let me, let me set the tone here. Okay. So net zero by 2050 to do that. So they started with the conclusion. And what they said was no new oil and gas investments or fossil fuels, period. No, so no coal, oil and gas and no new ICE vehicles. Beginning now, beginning yeah. 2021, yeah, beginning no new, oil, no new fossil fuel investments. So. Yeah, and yeah, and no new ICE vehicles after 2035, which is actually not, yeah. cr not crazy in terms of what they're what they're mentioning, although I don't know how you would take diesel. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah, we'll see. Um, and then what's interesting is this report. So this is not their forecast. This is one of many scenarios they run. It was a thought experiment about how you get to 2050. But it was used as ammo by everybody who wants to say, leave it in the ground. And it was widely, widely criticized by everybody from banks to realists who realize you can't stop spending CapEx. And the interesting context is that after the pandemic hit, IEA described the lack of CapEx as staggering and warned about supply security. Well, so that, that's the really tricky thing is because so this is really an antithesis to the JP Morgan report that came out a couple weeks ago that we referenced and we will we will get into that. Both reports are worth you need to read them on and your that own. That was uh, Vaslav Smil and uh, Mike Simbolist, yeah. who's the strategist. Well, Vaslav Smil at least helped influence it or guided it, but it's a really excellent report. Just basically explaining that how hard it is. Um, one, what is what has been the, the uh, adoption rate of renewables to date, and the reasons why it's been hard, and uh, lots and lots of reasons why it's been difficult, and just pointing out how difficult it will be and, and costs and everything. Particularly, they do actually point out when, uh, the the chart on on internal combustion engine the cost of the vehicles versus their electric counterparts and this is important for the IEA report because you know ford came out and said they're going to re be releasing their electric f-150 next um the lightning the lightning um coming it looks awesome it I looks like one. my f-150 in my garage it's great um except my f-150 i drove it home on the i it gets over 600 miles of basically averages over 600 miles in the gas tank. And I drove it's 200 miles door to door from here to my house and outside of Craig, Colorado. And I get like 24 miles to the gallon and I don't have range. Is that issues. diesel? Um, no, it's just gas. It's, okay. a v, it's a V6 and gas engine, King Ranch, awesome truck. And the interesting thing is that, you know, I, I've thought about this adoption of these F-150s a lot. And it's that you're going to adopt them in places where people don't need trucks. And admittedly, I don't need this truck, but I love it. I mean, I'm a truck girl, but on rabbit ears in the hot weather, when I drive home in the summer and on in rabbit ears in the cold weather, I don't think the um, more expensive F-150 that is about 10, I think they were putting it over $70,000 or close to $80,000. It's not going to in those extreme temperatures. So I, I disagreed with, with Dan Pickering on Clubhouse when he was talking about his merge venture and saying he did think F-150s would get adopted from a fleet perspective because they would work. I don't think in Midland when it's super hot in the summer that they necessarily will work. I think there's times where they will work. But when you reduce that, when you have those range issues and stuff, it may not, may or may not. You know, time and place for but, everything. I right. mean, urban areas where there's construction, I think they would work great. And I also tweeted as an aside that the day that these things get sold, 
there is going to be some construction guy who throws a diesel gen set in the back of it and uses yes. it to charge the yes, truck. You did. It will happen instantly. It, instantly. Well, they just want the they just want the the off the either uh, opportunity. But the whole point of this. So back to this IA report. So it's very. I think it's the antithesis to the the JP Morgan report in that it's very. One IEA, we, we have to put this in context. So International Energy Agency, um, it does, when Ethan just mentioned that what they said earlier this year, one, it's counter to what their existing forecast outlook says. So their existing monthly IEA report, which you have to purchase for a couple grand, says that, you know, we are going to hit, uh, we're already nearing post-COVID recovery, but by the um, by August, we're essentially going to be over the five-year average for demand for global oil products. And by the end of the year, we'll be hitting basically 100 million barrels of AA demand. So already their actual forecasts are off from what they want to happen in this report. And that begs the question, why is the International Energy Agency putting out things about what they want or should look like? Well, in the report, they say that they did this on the request of um, the UK president of the COP26. And if you just Google how IE gets their funding, and I do think it's important to bring this up, and I'm positive I'm going to get some flack for this, but I think it's we start we need to start asking ourselves where the International Energy Agency is getting their funding. And I think it should be a little bit more transparent if they're putting out these reports, because the International Energy Agency was supposed to be this global watchdog when yeah, we started in 1973 after the oil, oil crisis designed to create supply security. Yes. Focused on oil. Irony. I, exactly. And supply <laughs> security. And we could even say that about energy. But this report is not anything. This report is saying you have to stop. I mean, the fact that you're telling people stop investing in fossil, you're basically telling people through this report to stop investing in fossil fuels now. And then the greatest thing is this price outlook. Holy crap. The price outlook is amazing because in 2021, they're saying $35 oil. One, it's not $35 oil in 2021, but that's what they're putting in this. And so their presumption for all this to work is very, very low oil prices, which doesn't actually work because everybody and their dog is going to be using oil prices like mad. Um, so this whole outlook, like they, it's net zero, right? And it's, it's by the way, this the target for net zero is that it's basically, it's a thought exercise partly too. So I'll give them credit for that. It's a thought exercise. It's basically saying we can do this. You know, this is how we achieve net zero by 2050. And here's how we go about doing it. And they're basically saying we do have the tools in our toolbox, even if half the technologies aren't ready to deploy immediately, they will be ready to deploy by 2035 and that we need to be investing everything now. The, the numbers for solar and wind that they put in, and that's what is a little disturbing for me because they're banking to get to these numbers, which is a 50% probability. So to hit their degree Celsius targets that they want to hit to prevent the, the catastrophe that's assumed with, with hitting a two degree number, to hit their global targets, they have a 50% probability. So half, F. Um, so they could be wrong. So you could work all this way, trillions and trillions of dollars spent to do all of this. And your probability is only 50% that you're actually going to achieve it. That to me is very, very scary. And it's not that I'm criticizing that stuff doesn't need to be done. It's that you have to be more predictable. And the reason oil and gas guys get so frustrated with this is because they're numbers people. They don't, we don't work in 50% probability world. We can't drill a well with 50% probability that it's going to pan out. Not that that doesn't stop people. It doesn't stop people. <laughs> and you do have dry holes and you have poor wells. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that, you know, I think there's questions about, you know, we know that methane is bad for the environment, but we don't measure it the same way. We don't have a perfect methane emissions chart that we do for global CO2 emissions. So investors now are tend to focus on CO2 emissions as opposed to methane, even though methane is supposedly 30 times 
you know, uh, worse for the environment, more concentrated, but it stays in the atmosphere less long um, so that you can have a, a greater immediate impact on it now. But the, so all these technologies, everything's proposed, essentially ramp up wind, ramp up solar um, and, you know, don't invest in any fossil fuels at all anymore. And then you basically decline off this. So the problem with that is that the International Energy Forum, so the IEF, the IEA and OPEC, I, we talked about this, they did their forum in February. That's the, this isn't this wasn't the answer that came out of that that forum the international energy forum and the IEA did not come out and say stop investing in fossil fuels today they said in fact we're going to we're going to have a big price spike if we don't invest in fossil fuels and even even Spencer Dale which we talked about in the podcast even Spencer Dale BP said I think the investment community does not understand exactly climate you know understanding ESG pressures and everything and the fact that just because we're declining demand doesn't mean we still don't need crude oil. So the problem with reports like this is they will be taken. I think one of the few that agreed with it was IRENA, which is the International Renewable Energy Agency, which essentially said that we already said this before. We can do this. It's super easy peasy, blah, blah, blah. It's not, they didn't say it's easy peasy. They did say it's hard, but that we can do this. But they've gotten, I mean, thanks. Everyone basically just said this is just this is kind of ridiculous. I mean, the fact that we're even talking about it, we're probably giving it too much credibility because- In the, in the understatement of all time, OPEC said that it will lead to volatility. Oh, yes. Oh, my, <laughs> lead to volatility. I mean, OPEC would love this because they show their market share going up. But even then, right. they, demand is reduced to 24 million barrels per day. So, and they say, they use 2019 levels. So they say 90 million barrels a day in 2019. We are not at 90 million barrels a day demand, okay? We are at probably 97, 98 million barrels a day demand if we're absorbing these barrels. So let's just say we're at 97. So you're going from 97 million barrels to 24 million barrels a day in a pretty short time period. I mean, in our, this isn't even, you know, in those previous forecasts we looked at, which they said we need to be, that's, that's basically like they, in their aggressive one, they say we need to do that by, you know, down to 67 million barrels a day by 2030. The demand crunch on this is, it's so big. And yes, they also, so this report is free. You can check it out on their website. They also have all these, they came out with their electric vehicle report and everything. And they say that we've had massive electric vehicle sales, you know, in 2020, that's great. We've had, try to go buy a used car now. Like you can't get a used car. You can't get a new car, but you can't get a used car because everybody wants them. And traffic is at all time highs because nobody's taking public transportation anymore. I mean, the economies are reopening. Public transportation, I, I think that there's kind of some risks in some of these infrastructure bills for, for Biden because the COVID has changed people's uh, affection toward public transport um, and, I, that can go away. I'm not saying that that won't go away. We won't get back to normal, but it, it doesn't right now. People want to drive their own vehicles. Yeah. And you can't buy a bicycle either, which is interesting. Yeah. You can't I buy like a bicycle. Um, so, you know, I, I walk everywhere in Denver, but the point is like, it just, so their, their price outlook is really interesting and in that it's extremely low. Um, and the fact that they even put it in there, I, they also put in their, um, adoption of solar and wind. And so it's it's huge. They said it's equivalent to building out. Basically, they tell everyone you have to put all your money now. You have to be investing really, really hardcore right now and doing things immediately to make these changes and that you have to be adopting, you know, huge. It's like 660 what gigawatts of wind. Um, massive, massive adoption is basically they said it's the equivalent to 20, 20 times what we're, we're doing right now. Um, so you're building all this stuff out. Not once do they mention in this report about 
the the solar panels being made from Xinjiang. And I say this because this is really- We will need a lot of slave labor to build this much this solar. This is really growing. The fact, that, the fact that you've reports like this saying that you have to do this now, when are we gonna hear the environmental community come out and say, we probably need to pivot to wind in the near term if we wanna hit these targets because 80% of the world's solar panels are coming from China, at least 50% of them are coming from Xinjiang, and that we know this is forced, this is slave labor, these are internment camps, and this is not okay. The UN just, again, China, listen to that podcast, um, China Geopolitics, the UN just had a meeting, and you, we do have some people who are still on, on the human rights bandwagon who really care about this, and they're basically saying, you know, nobody has been in, UN human rights folks have not been into China since 2005. So, there, nope. was, there was, in, in fairness, there was one company, and I, I don't recall the name right now, one solar manufacturer that just allowed in observers to demonstrate that they that, didn't think, have Right, have and that's clearly, that's clearly BS. It's like when North Korea <laughs> Maybe allows- or maybe not, but at least they were making it. There was a charm offensive to address this, but it by no means is industry-wide. So I think that charm offensive was actually, so China said, hey, don't do this. They did it anyway. And really, China was saying, do it. Play of it course, up, you don't let do them anything in. without Right, that. so they're doing it. it that's a whole yeah. game. They're, they're showing you what you want to see. Um, and they can't, you know, when, when you talk to people, they basically say, well, we could do some, you know, we could basically make sure that we're not getting those solar panels. So you can't, at the adoption rates that they're they're telling you to adopt for solar and wind because that's the technologies we have in place now. So it's it's massive adoption. It's you know ramping up everything we possibly can in the near term with the existing technologies of solar and wind. So it means that you'd be buying all these from China now. And the fact that 50% of the world's solar panels are coming from Xinjiang, you just, you're just enabling this. Um, yeah. And one of the, what's interesting is there's a guy named Mike Schellenberger who is a a nuclear advocate from the environmental perspective. And he pointed out that there a significant part of the declining cost of manufacturing solar panels actually came from the labor arbitrage in China, which if you, if you all of a sudden said, Hey, we're going to boycott Chinese solar because the, the supply chain is just too toxic. You could actually see some of that efficiency gain come, come back. You had to make solar panels in Albany, or Arizona, where they where they actually make a ton of sense, the cost of manufacturing should be a lot higher. Well, and we have so, we have US a US solar company, and I believe obviously they're advocating for this because it's made here. But it is yeah. we talked about in previous podcasts. It is extremely energy intensive, um, and that's why they use the some of the biggest coal power plants in China. Um, and we're going to get to this in a second because this report assumes that they won't be using any coal in China. Um, so. They're using all these coal many these these coal power plants to make these solar panels with forced labor, and they did flood the market. So when people say that solar panels and wind have gone down in price, they made it there. They do have cheap labor. There's a reason why we outsource to China, and that's what businesses do. But at the point where it's forced labor and you're not paying for anything, of course it's cheap. This will have to change. I don't. I do think these voices are growing. I don't think that the folks. This is a. It, and the, the pushback China has on this, they just deny it. They just say, of course, no, we don't have any human rights abuses. We don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it's the entire province of Xinjiang. I mean, this is re-education a re-education camp. So that that's mm. OK. They're Muslim. It's you can very just, Pol Pot. I mean, it's so um, it's really, really disturbing. It's disturbing that it doesn't get as much attention in this day and age. And then if you that the Chinese geopolitics podcast is super interesting because the the gentleman there who, who puts the China perspective, he does say the defenses. He says, well, you know, uh, you know, 
they did this in Germany. Hitler had these camps. I mean, they liken this to, you know, like, well, other countries did it and now they're fine. It's it wasn't OK then. It's not OK now. Um, and it can't it's, have it both ways. And it's 2021. So um, if the U.S. was doing this, I'd sure as hell hope would be called out for it. And I don't want this happening. You know, I mean, so not saying uh, lots of countries have stuff under, you know, this, this taking place. And we have the lots Japanese of- internment camps in World War Two, which everyone would agree are horrific now. Yeah. But at the time, they were rationalized and justified. We, we just can't allow that in our No, chain. and I think that it's interesting because it's like, well, if the climate crisis is so bad now, it's like, well, you know, it's so bad now, so we got to do it now, and then we'll sort of deal with that problem later. Like, the, what what's the point of having a world if you, I mean, the humanitarian issues are really real, and you, this whole thing with China, which Biden talks about, of like letting them eat our lunch, this is letting them eat our lunch. So, find an alternative, make it in other countries go, you know, and this is why Taiwan is, is rising up, you know, this issues are bubbling up because they, they're make the bulk of the semiconductors and they're a major issue. And so if Taiwan wanted to go out or if China wanted to go after them this year, they would cause lots of problems. And so these issues are not going away, whether it's solar panels and gel or anything else made t-shirts. I mean, you name it, whatever's made there, it's a, it's a real issue and it's not going to go away anytime soon. No, I mean, it's nuts. I mean, the, the list of, examples of insane energy policy outcomes is long. So you can't build gas pipelines in the Northeast. So what do you end up with? Russian LNG tankers parked in Boston during the winter to, to have spikes. You uh, you want, you know, clean and renewable power. So you import Chinese solar panel, panels with questionable supply chain, but you won't allow a high voltage transmission line in from Canada into the Northeast to allow for an expansion of really good baseload hydropower into the Northeast because of NIMBY concerns. I mean, the list of these problems, like let's say, for example, lithium mining in Nevada, there are people pushing back on that. So it, it's insane, these sort of NIMBY issues here that prevent us from having stable, secure energy. And we're allowing for these things abroad that, that people are just sort of you know, just letting happen. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's, it's just virtue the, signal. It's sort of the, well, virtue signal, but it's the reality. And I think that's just what I want to ground this in reality is that these reports, the reaction I was getting from peers and folks on Twitter was just that it was bananas. Um, and I just don't know how, as a thought exercise, it's interesting. It does bother me that this was done at the request of, a, of, of you know, the president of the COP26 in, in the UK, which sounds to me like the UK is probably trying to validate their own policies that they're doing. It also makes me question what Fatih Barol, given that he hasn't, you know, the way he used to talk about U.S. shale, Fatih Barol is the, the head of the International Energy Agency, but the way he used to talk about U.S. shale, the way he was very bullish on U.S. shale and understanding it. And, you know, this big pivot now on, on I listened to an interview of him last night because I was just curious as to where this was coming from. This big pivot now on doing all this, it, it doesn't seem it, do, it doesn't make sense. Right. It's not grounded in reality. And they've become an advocacy organization. And that means that their data stuff, the stuff that people spend thousands of dollars a year on their monthly data stuff. I would say you may start having a question because you're either you typically don't you can't be both. Right. Um, and so then you have to start questioning their funding, you know, where they're getting their funding and, and who's pushing this stuff, because and what's the point of really doing it? But the. I'm not, we're not poo-pooing renewables and saying you can't have renewables and you can't do this, but it is, it's beyond complex and it's going to be extremely messy. Think some things are going to work. Some things are not going to work, but I guarantee you this scenario 
It, you you 80 which way is a Sunday, this will not work. You will bankrupt economies. And at a 50% probability, you may not solve the problem you're trying to actually solve. Right. And you may exa- you're going to exasperate it. If you're relying on China for this much of what you need, oh, and it assumes that China's complying with all their power things. I don't think China can produce all those solar panels with that, without the coal power. It's not possible. Right. So, so coal-fired fa- coal power creating solar panels. Right. So yeah. it just doesn't make sense, at least in the near term. No matter how you spin this, you're going to increase emissions in the near term. We've said this before, but also if those prices, so their price trajectory, and you know we'll put a link to this on the podcast, but their price trajectory for for um, oil prices is so low. I mean, you're, we're talking $30 oil prices in the 30s and low prices. And assuming that you have no demand at $30 oil prices or 35 or 40, everyone in the dog is going to burn this crude oil. So it just doesn't, these things don't really make sense. But I mean, that that's what they sort of need to put in line with saying you don't really need to invest in it because demand, you know, we, we stop demand right. and everything, but it just, um, it doesn't work. And we probably didn't do this justice because we're going off no. on a lot of tangents, but we will, we will no, definitely we circle. That. Tangents so, and digre- digressions are, yeah. are part and parcel we are for this, about this. Uh, this We podcast. will certainly circle back to this uh, topic. So, sure. yeah. So I just want to put a nail in the coffin. I've coined a phrase, scope for emissions. <laughs> and scope for emissions include things like Leonardo DiCaprio's private jet and fancy models full of yachts emissions while making movies about uh containing global warming it's hot air reports like this that are completely unrealistic that do not add but actually oh, but distort they, the debate they say that if you we we cycle more and i sound really critical because i am but they say if we would just if we walk more and we cycle more we change consumer behavior um oh yeah setting the thermostat to different levels yes. i mean i walked around so i'm walking walking because i do a lot of walking right now but i'm walking around and i'm noticing you know look at all the cars parked on the streets the fact that they don't have garages to, to you know plug in um, there would be electric vehicles, but the fact that yeah. we that housing boom is so crazy that a yard, uh, a garage was just torn down, which I assume they're going to actually they just uh, they bought the house. An investor probably bought the house, took out the garage, and is going to build a house right there. So split the split the lot in half, and it's going to be super tiny. Meaning there is no garage, right? So you're going to have electric cords come out of these houses, plugging yeah. in these. There are 50 million multiple dwelling units in the United States that would need to be retrofitted somehow. Yeah, this so is a, a sticky their challenge. Their trillion dollar numbers seem off to, but we will yeah. get into this again. Yeah. Well, um, May 21st, episode seven, 17, 17 yes. I think was, uh, I'm pretty proud of this one. Yeah, I like I am it. too. This may be the only podcast where you actually want to slow it down to listen to it rather than accelerate it. Because as you can tell, Trisha starts talking faster and louder the more passionate she gets. She yes. is your petroner. So uh, if, you, if you need help with something, she's a good consultant and will advocate for you and will help you get to the brass tacks on decision making. The CEO of Petronerds, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, Ethan, and happy birthday. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, guys. Signing Bye. off. Until next time.